The inconvenient truth about public education. What are we getting for our money? Once touted as the best in the nation, the shocking data surrounding Minnesota schools from the man who did the math. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Educate. I'm Liz Collin. Also ahead, AI in the classroom. How far is too far for artificial intelligence to be used in our schools? We're joined by our constitutional expert here in a bit. And underestimating the importance of play. What parents can do to translate guided play to reading and math skills. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us. We're going to get to those stories and more here in a moment. But first, if you are new to the show, welcome to Educate. We're here to take a deep dive into education. We're also showing you ways to get involved, to show up, to stand up, and to speak up on behalf of your kids. The central issues of education, providing criticism and positive solutions to problems. My name is Liz Collin. I'll be your host here for the next hour. I'm a Minnesota-based journalist, a wife, a mom. I'm in this too, and happy to be with you as we navigate this crazy world of education together. But it doesn't have to be so complicated. We are here to help, and we have some great guests to help us along the way. With that, a very happy new year. Let's get to our first story here on Educate, the inconvenient truth about public education. A recent commentary that appeared on Alpha News, a Minnesota-based news service where I work. Here's a quote. Education spending ranks as the largest expense of the annual state budget, yet academic performance amongst K-12 students is abysmal and in a state of decline. Once touted as one of the best in the nation, the Minnesota public school system is failing. I wanted to bring on the author of this article, Bob Phelan. Bob, thank you so much for being here on Educate, and a Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Liz. Thanks for having me on, and I appreciate you guys uh, creating this podcast to amplify the issues of education. It's really important. Yeah, it sure is. And there is so much to talk about. And this really was an eye opener of an article, I think, for a lot of people. It was kind of went kind of went wild on on social media, for sure, because I think a lot of people do have their head in the sand a bit or they don't really know how how bad things are. Uh, But to start with, Bob, just give us a bit of your background, how you became involved. I know it's kind of an interesting turn of events, uh, but how you became involved in, in looking into all of this. Well, it, it is funny because, you know, I was, again, one of those individuals who was kind of on the sidelines with regard to local issues like school boards and what's happening within the schools and uh, didn't take notice until uh, my own grandchildren were now getting enrolled in schools and starting to investigate what was going on and starting to attend some board meetings. And I was just appalled, first of all, the fact that I was the only one in attendance, even though my kids weren't even in school. Hmm. And just there's no one paying attention. So I don't know. I, I started to, you know, get involved with some things and uh, came across an organization called the Minnesota Parents Alliance, which is led by just a very dynamic individual, Christine Troyan. Went to a couple of their meetings and um, we wound up, uh, uh, you know, having me focus. You know, I, I know some people here locally in the Minnetonka and Hopkins area, and that's where my uh, grandchildren are um, reside. And uh, I started attending some meetings there. And one of the meetings I was at, uh, you know, uh, came up on this whole school finance thing. I was like, this doesn't seem right. I, you know, every time I open the paper, there's people asking for more money for schools. And I looked at the the Minnesota budget was 12 billion plus for education. And yet we're not fully funded. (laughs) And then I started looking into scoring and I was like, what is going on here? We have all this money and uh, the, the, the grades appear to be going down. This is well before the pandemic list. 
Anyway, yeah, I was sitting at a, uh, a meeting of the MPA uh, in August of 22 and sat next to a, a gentleman who was poring over spreadsheets. And and I introduced myself, and it turned out to be a guy by the name of Ken Wolf, who was a state legislator here in Minnesota and served on the um, House Education Finance Committee and uh, became the chair of the Subcommittee on Government Efficiency and Oversight, and a partnership was born then and there on doing deeper analysis and a deep dive on education finance. And Ken Wolf has been able to sort of turn that narrative on its head, this whole that funding hasn't kept pace with inflation. Um, I know, and he and you guys have, have written about that quite quite a bit t- together, but, but kind of dive into this um, more. You say in this article, an inconvenient truth for the MDE and the many school administrators is revealed here but kind of paint the picture you know how bad is this well you know i'm sure your listeners uh are aware of you know uh, what's going on in the news with you know everybody lamenting that there's just simply not enough money and um we need more money for this we need more money for that and uh you know we need to fully fund schools and the narrative that's been placed out there is that uh school funding um does not keep pace with inflation and uh, when I met Ken, he was like, you know, you have to, you know, read very carefully how they position this thing. I'm like, because, again, I had very little or no background in certainly education finance. So I had to learn from the best. Um, and Ken pointed out, notice how they always say basic, because there's something in the line item in the Department of Education called the basic formula, which is the baseline of education funding here in Minnesota. So, you know, again, we started doing the digging and finding out that the basic formula has definitely decreased as a total of funding uh, from you know upwards of 75% in 2003 to you know under 60% in many districts in 2023 so a 20-year shift but what's happened is a lot of money is being raised through um, other sources both here in the state and through local tax levies and our analysis showed Liz that for the last 20 years, uh, statewide funding, school funding has kept pace and exceeded inflation in the state mm. of Minnesota. You're listening to Educate. And again, we are talking with Bob Phelan, the founder of Local Elections Matter, about his latest article, The Inconvenient Truth About Public Education. And you mentioned this b- before a bit, Bob, but many want to blame this on on the pandemic, on COVID. But but you're right. This was happening long, long before uh, the, the numbers reveal that, don't they? Yep, absolutely. So we, um, you know, all of our analysis, Liz, and I'm going to make this point, um, is coming directly from the Minnesota Department of Education website. So this is accessible by the public, but they make it extremely difficult to really do the deep dive, which is why Mm -hmm. a guy like Ken really comes in. But we found that uh, on a statewide basis, and certainly on a district by district basis, you're seeing scores plummeting, particularly in math, well before COVID. Um, we're seeing double-digit declines between 2014 and 2019, long before anybody heard of COVID. Yeah, and I'm just um, taking a, a closer look at some of these findings. Uh, this is a direct quote. In 2023, more than half of all K-12 through students are not performing at grade level in core education curriculum, with only 45.5% of students proficient in math, 49.9% in reading, and 39.2% uh, in science. So when you are asked the question of, of how bad it is, it, it is bad. And these are numbers that that sadly don't get much attention, uh, do they? 
No, they not they not only get uh, little attention, but you get a lot of pushback from what I refer to as the education industry. And it starts at the federal level with the U.S. Department of Education and, and kind of filters down through the state departments of education and Education Minnesota, which is the essentially the, the, the organization around the teachers union. And uh, it's odd that, you know, when 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 things start to go south on testing, instead of identifying the problem and creating a strategy to create solutions for this, they attack the problem. So <laughs> you'll see in articles all over the state, um, you know, people at the superintendent and uh, Minnesota Department of Education level uh, discounting the need for standardized testing. So uh, we've even had uh, superintendents calling standardized testing racist and classist and no longer an accurate barometer of student or school performance. So again, they're running away from the facts because the facts tell a, a pretty troubling story. And uh, what I don't see, which is really troubling, is anybody interested in, uh, in from the education industry in creating real solutions. We'll continue our conversation with Bob Phelan. I want to talk more about Local Elections Matter. I know you're the founder of that group. And again, we're talking about uh, his latest article, The Inconvenient Truth About Public Education, which you can find on alphanews.org. But more to talk about, especially when it comes to the standardized testing situation. Does the Minnesota legislature uh, care about this? You know, what kind of messaging are they Put it, putting out, and I think most importantly, what turns this around? How to get uh, the right people in the room to make a difference here? So that's all to come here on Educate. The show is brought to you by the New American. For more, visit thenewamerican.com. We'll be right back. Hey, America, how tired are you of mainstream corporate media's biased narratives and manipulated news? Their dishonesty and attempts to influence this generation have been exposed, put on display for anyone who's even half paying attention. But the New American Magazine has been an honest source of news and commentary for over 50 years. This is your opportunity to receive the stalwart of principled journalism at a deep discount. Picture a beautifully published magazine arriving at your doorstep twice a month, packed with insightful stories written with integrity. It's also available digitally on the New American's mobile app, Get up to speed with intelligent coverage from a freedom perspective. Right now, for a limited time, The New American is available to radio listeners at a 25% discount on a new subscription. Visit thenewamerican.com slash radio25 and receive 25% off. Subscribe today at thenewamerican.com slash radio25. Welcome back to Educate. Again, this is Liz Collin, and I am speaking with Bob Phelan, the founder of Local Elections Matter, talking a bit about public education, specifically in Minnesota, but I think that many states can relate uh, to this very conversation. I wanted to start uh, there, this segment, Bob, with what is Local Elections Matter, and and also make this clear, uh, you know, this is an attack, is not an attack, as you've said, on on teachers, on on teachers' unions, but but talk about that, what, what the goals here are. So we formed Local Elections Matter a little over a year ago, simply as um, a group to inform citizens about local school board governance processes, because most people have no idea how schools are run. 
and just trying to motivate greater public engagement and amplification of the matters that impact local schools, which is super important to everybody. And I kind of have a New Year's resolution is to really elevate the subject, the entire subject of education, public education specifically, getting more people engaged and trying to influence positive change. It's one thing to point out the issues in declining grades and escalating budgets, but what are we going to do? What are we going to do as citizens? What are we going to do as elected officials? What are we going to do as a student body to get these schools back on their feet? And, and you think, um, you know, I think so many of these uh, topics, sadly, have become political. Uh, but why is it, uh, do you think that, that that's the case? It seems like education doesn't everybody want the, the same things. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you, know, you and I have talked about this previously. I really think this should be one of the top issues for state, uh, local, and national elections. I mean, education is uh, a foundational fabric for our country and for every community in our country. And it just is really puzzling to me why there doesn't appear to be more serious focus on this and more, um, you know, accountability from elected officials. All I've seen uh, of late is, you know, news uh, on social media posts from the governor and lieutenant governor talking about, you know, feeding, you know, making sure that students have a full stomach when there are dozens, literally dozens of federal programs intended to feed children that need it. And they don't give any, um, uh, you know, airtime, if you will, to the decline in academics. And what is really concerning to me is there just appears to be a lot of this virtue signaling about, you know, trying to make uh, all of our curriculum and, and policies more equitable. And it's like, what does that mean? Because when I do a deeper dive on the MCA testing, I have found that the people that are, are really being impacted the most, Liz, or those that they say they're trying to help. So for example, in in uh, Hopkins, where I've given uh, most of my time in terms of uh, analysis, you have a, uh, a school that at one time was named Minnesota's first national school of excellence by the US Department of Education, US News and World Report back in the 80s. And in 2023, their MCA testing is below 50% across the board, across the district. And the disadvantaged students, so the equity-based policies are hurting them the most. So for example, black students in Hopkins, not proficient at grade level, 86% not proficient in math, 73% in reading, 90% in science, only 3% of black fifth graders are proficient in math. This should horrify the entire community. And mm -hmm. again, I, all we see is virtue signals like, guys, you have an issue, let's create solutions to fix this. Let's get the issue of education front and center for all Minnesotans. And you write this again, uh, speaking with Bob Phelan, the founder of Local Elections Matter, but it says in 2024 and beyond, education must be elevated to become one of the top issues for state and local elections, for it impacts the daily lives of Minnesota residents more than what currently dominates the news cycle. Our schools are producing the next generation of doctors, lawyers, electricians, chemists, accountants, teachers, community leaders, and more. A healthy K-12 education system is vital to maintaining a healthy, vibrant society. The time is now for people in our state to make themselves more aware of what is transpiring in local school elections and to encourage friends and neighbors to participate in school board elections. How important is that uh, school board election piece to all of this? And, and moreover, how can people get involved to make a difference? The school board thing is super crucial. You know, two levels of administration for school districts. You know, you have your district administration, which are full-time staffers, 
and you have your uh, locally elected school boards, which are generally volunteer positions. And, you know, trying to identify, you know, common sense uh, school board candidate is paramount. And I think in discussions I've had with people like Christine and people across the state, it really starts with organizing parent groups that are focused on uh, academics and uh, parent involvement and just, you know, a healthy campus lifestyle. And I think the most important thing is just trying to get uh, more groups like the Anoka Hennepin Parents Alliance that is led by Joy Adet, done great things. You know, uh, less than five years ago, the board was, I think, uh, six zero in terms of, uh, you know, more progressive leftist ideology. Now it's three three with, uh, you know, three candidates, you know, bringing to the table more common sense thinking with regard to funding and academic pursuit. Um, you know, again, I, I think that identifying school board candidates is huge. Attending school board meetings, I know they're really boring, but uh, and you don't have to make every single one. And most of them are generally can be found online as well. But uh, participating in school board elections is super important. One of the things that disturbs me the most is looking at these uh, recent elections in, you know, 2022 and 2023 in an off year, you have less than 5% of the community voting for school boards. Wow. And it's like, it's like, and again, I, you may have some listeners that take offense to this next comment, but I, you know, a guy like me uh, gets a little frustrated when, you know, the news, all they want to cover on issues is, are things like abortion. And I think to myself, um, really, how many, what's the percentage of people in our state, in the country that is impacted by abortion? And I have to think it's in the single digits, whereas, you know, education, it's like literally every single position that's filled in our country, whether it's doctors, lawyers, teachers, plumbers, engineers, pilots, all of it, all of it is based in education. And if we can't educate our citizens properly, our society is in real trouble. And I just think that education should be Personally, I think it should be the number one issue. Absolutely. And and just um, going back to something we were talking about earlier, because I think it is interesting, the about face that, that has happened with standardized testing. This was supposed to be the marker in all of this, Bob, right? Uh, they sure seem to, to really matter. But now it seems administrators are, are seeing the, the scores uh, f- falling and, and failing, uh, you know, quite frankly, and they don't seem to want to put as much uh, stock in them as as before. Yeah. And I, and I mentioned earlier, Liz, that, you know, my uh, notion that this, you know, it's the pushback from the education industry. So not only is test no longer useful, but in their analysis of funding, they do not, they refuse to use CPI as their measure of inflation. <laughs> so we met with some people in St. Paul, we're like, how is this? And they're like, well, we've come up with something that, you know, kind of counts. So essentially you have the education industry creating their own metrics for inflation, which includes their annual union-backed raises, which blows my mind. The other thing they push back against is average daily membership, which again, for decades has been the measure of school attendance. And now they have, uh, you know, since they're being funded based on attendance, when they have falling attendance, what they've done is actually changed the definition of attendance to include now uh, various grades uh, getting counted more than once. So a high school student might be counted as 1.3 students so that they can make it look like they're maintaining their uh, 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 attendance for their schools. It's, it's just crazy. It's just like when things go against them, 
They literally look for ways to dispel the facts, and that's really frustrating. Local Elections Matter can be found on XLEM Minnesota and on Facebook. Bob Phelan, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it very much. Happy New Year, Liz, to you and your family. We'll talk soon. This show is brought to you by The New American. For more, visit thenewamerican.com. Welcome back to Educate. I'm Liz Collin. We just finished up our conversation about where all the money is going and where it isn't with a Minnesota representative from Local Elections Matter. And now it's on to artificial intelligence. AI, as we know, is all around us in the military, in medicine, retail, entertainment, you name it. Uh, So why not the classroom? Uh, This story from Forbes with a bit of background, Precision Education, How K-12 Schools Are Embracing AI. The first paragraph reads, as artificial intelligence continues to evolve, its applications in various sectors have been groundbreaking and education is no exception. AI has become a pivotal aspect of K-12 education, offering transformative potential in reshaping our education models. Schools are already leveraging these tools to enhance learning experiences, improve educational outcomes, and assist teachers with their instructional process. So let's delve into this a bit, how AI is being integrated in the K-12 classroom, its benefits, challenges, the future outlook of of this technology, uh, how this is all going to work, because it kind of freaks me out, I'm going to be honest. So good or bad thing, uh, we thought we'd ask Mr. Joe Wolverton. He knows best, basically, on everything. Uh, But Joe lives to share timeless principles of liberty with his readers and to help them use their knowledge in becoming friends of freedom and defenders of the Constitution. He is an author, a great writer for the New American Magazine. Joe, a happy 2024 to you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Liz, and happy new year to you as well. I don't know where you stand in this artificial intelligence uh, deal. I did say that it, it freaks me out a little bit. And I'm going to be honest, each and every day I hear about more and more, it seems, about AI. It, it does. But what do, you, what do you think when it comes to the classroom, a good or bad thing for, for our kids in schools and, and why? You know, with anything, Liz, when it comes to education, I prefer pushing, you know, retaining parents, retaining sovereignty over that which is taught to their children. And I think, honestly, AI in the classroom is disturbing because we really, in truth, don't have artificial intelligence yet, Liz. We have really good programming, which is not quite the same thing. And so in this case, it scares me because the AI that would be used in classrooms would be provided by some company, perhaps a textbook company, perhaps a technology company, over whom parents would have very little oversight. And that troubles me. Whereas if you use AI at home, if you're homeschooling or if you're in some sort of classroom situation where the parents do have greater oversight, I think that AI can be a great tool because as the Forbes article points out, it does facilitate this personalization of, of learning, which which is a, an important thing. I mean, everyone is different. Everyone learns at different levels. Everyone has uh, distinct skills and distinct interests. And I think AI can be, can be attuned to uh, bring those out, to help blossom, to help students blossom in their particular talents. But when we're talking AI in the classroom without 
parent oversight. That to me is disturbing because kids already are taught, you know, respect your teachers, do what you're told. And if you have this AI that is using this input from students and narrowly, ta- narrowly tailoring it to where this student can be taught the whatever uh, beliefs that the providers of this AI want them to believe, that to me is very disturbing. Yeah, you you mentioned that uh, the, how the article talks about you know personalizing curriculum, tailor a lesson plan in a way. If Johnny isn't keeping up, here's a way to kind of get him on track. They they also mention uh, teacher efficiency, helping helping teachers to grade, and and things like that seem to raise red flags in in my mind as well. I don't know what what your thought is there on that. I just don't like I don't like outsourcing responsibility, Liz. I mean, yeah. that's that's something that I think is is missing in our world so much is the concept of personal responsibility. And I think to outsource to AI the responsibility of grading, the responsibility of creating a lesson plan, you know, this may be teachers technologying themselves out of a job. And, you know, when it comes down to it, it's it's like, where does it end? You know, if we have AI, if we outsource everything, will there be any need for teachers? Will, you know, will there be any need for anything other than some chip planted in someone's brain? This is exactly what I think about. I mean, uh, maybe AI will do a better job as uh, re- reporting the news, though. That could be something we look, look we look forward to. Um, <laughs> but I did want to have, have a listen here. This is a, a news station, uh, Como News in Seattle, featured a report last month uh, on this very topic, artificial intelligence in the classroom. Let's listen. Right now, some parents are hesitant about artificial intelligence being used in the classroom. Janae Bowens explains those concerns and what others believe are benefits. So how about we ask ChatGPT to make us a list of books about volcanoes? Yeah, okay. Okay. Jamie, Barba, and her husband Chris homeschool their two sons and are passionate about teaching them how to use artificial intelligence at a young age. I think it's important for us to know what's new, what's upcoming, what other people are using. Jamie emphasizes to her 9 and 10-year-olds that it enhances your work it's not something that should do your work. So if they do get to the point where they're writing papers, it can be a great research tool. But not all parents agree. A National Parents Union survey shows 44% of parents think there are about equal potential benefits and downsides when it comes to AI tools being used in K-12 public education. In addition to cheating, skeptics warn AI may hinder development. We don't introduce the calculator before children understand how it works how math works. It's an evolutional tool. Again, that was a Como News report in Seattle, and it seems that uh, parents, at least in that story, uh, seem divided on this topic, and I know that's what uh, Joe Wolverton is bringing to light here as well. He's an author, a great writer for the New American Magazine, and knows all things about the the Constitution. One of the, one of the parents, though, mentions in, in the story, Joe, about how, you know, this is what we need to do to keep pace with, with other countries. They're so far ahead when it comes to, um, you know, education in, in other countries. But what's your, your thought on, uh, on that? Well, I think perhaps other countries wouldn't be so far ahead of us in education if we weren't sending them billions of dollars every year. <laughs> Maybe if we retain some of that money that we unconstitutionally send to other countries, we could 
keep up with them, as they say. That's my first thought. And that may not be on topic, but that's my first thought on the subject. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, if you look at these, the technology, the AI technology, most of it's coming from American based companies. I think we, there is an issue, in my opinion, Liz of, as the article in Forbes points out, the equitable access to it. That's the only thing that I think will stand in the way. Uh, but we do have the the blessing, I suppose you say, that AI can be uh, obtained relatively easy. Whereas, for example, you might not have access to the best books and the best teachers, but those things become sort of irrelevant in the age where you can get on your phone and have this dynamic software program uh, attuned to your specific needs. So maybe the, uh, you know, the, the lack of equitable access might not be an issue. And so I think that it will enable us to have students, uh, maybe a, a flowery crop of geniuses who, because they were able to learn specifically that which was best attuned to their own talents uh, enables them to, to become the, the uh, geniuses, the Albert Einsteins of the next generation, so to speak. But, but yeah, as you mentioned, it, it seems like it could come at the cost of critical thinking, which is a very important life skill, uh, whether you're uh, in, in the classroom or, or not. So time will tell. Uh, again, we're talking to Joe Wolverton, the John Birch Society's constitutional law scholar and head of a dedicated think tank focused on promoting and preserving the Constitution of the United States through defending and, and upholding the principles enshrined in the Constitution. We are talking AI in the classroom, but we're going to switch gears, have a little of fun next, if you will. We're going to talk about uh, the importance of play, guided play. Uh, not only in in the classroom for our preschool kids and those younger those younger kids, uh, but for for all kids, uh, frankly, and and how parents are underestimating the importance of that. So that's coming up when we come back. This show is brought to you by the New American. For more, visit thenewamerican.com. Are you fed up with where our nation is headed? Here at the John Birch Society, we know how to fix a reckless, corrupt, and out-of-control government. It starts with patriots like you. We believe the only way to liberty and national sovereignty is to not only understand what's in our founding documents, but demand that every elected official adhere to them. The Constitution is America's only solution. Join the John Birch Society today. Visit us at jbs.org. Welcome back to Educate. I'm Liz Collin. Uh, play, it seems, something that artificial intelligence uh, will not replace, I, I think. Let's let's go ahead and, and go there. But parents underestimate the importance of guided play in education, uh, finds this study. We've been talking to uh, Joe Wolverton, our expert and constitutional law scholar and frequent guest on Educate. But this uh, this story, Joe, is all about the importance of play, which seems uh, kind of wild to me that they even have to study such things because uh, 
because this has just been around you would you would think for for generations but but sadly the way the world has 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 worked it seems that our kids are being pulled in all kinds of different directions and sadly it seems i think in front of screens far far too often but but what's your take how important how important is you know what they call guided play talk about what that means and and how important that is for the development of kids well, I think it's it's immeasurably important, Liz, and I think it's become uh, an issue in our day because of the, the great percentage. I think it's like 92 percent of kids go to public school, so they spend at least nine hours outside the presence of their parents and the the age continually decreases. So it's like when I was young, I think, you know, six years old. Now I have nieces and nephews that are four that start some sort of preschool, some sort of head start. And so you get kids at a very young age being essentially for nine hours a day being raised by strangers who who really don't have an incentive or time for that matter to pay particular attention to each individual child's um, proclivities to their talents to their to their particular uh, genius and so I think this issue now is cropping up because parents are seeing that there are there there's now a growing movement of homeschooling and you have these kids showing it just test scores that uh, outperform their public school colleagues and so it's becoming an issue of well how did this happen well you need to have guided play you need to as the article says parents paying attention from the youngest age at their at their kids um, particular talents and then you guide the play toward that as opposed to sitting them down like you say in front of a screen or even in front of a stranger in the form of a teacher who has a piece of paper given to her by her superiors of what she's supposed to teach and one size fits all and all of that. And it becomes something very Prussian and something none of us enjoy, which is sit down, shut up. When a bell rings, you move. When a bell rings, you sit down. You speak when spoken to. You regurgitate this information that you've re been reading on a screen. I put a letter next to your name and everybody moves along. And, and we're seeing this proliferation of homeschooling and unschooling and all of this. And parents are starting to take notice across the country and across the world and say, wait a minute, these kids seem to be to be flourishing. What's the story? And the story is that you have these kids are now growing up and being educated by their parents who have not only a personal interest in that, but also have the time and the access to their children to to give them this personalized guided play that is showing such beneficial results. Yeah, interesting. Well said. Uh, this story points out kind of the you know the the difference here, but it says guided play possible in the home and in the classroom differs from free play in being initiated by the adult while letting the child drive his or her learning towards a specific goal. Uh, for example, learning in Montessori classrooms, it says, and children children's museums is always initiated by an adult who reflects on learning goals. But children themselves drive the exploration within such guided learning environments, so giving them a, a choice uh, and, and a voice. Um, so talk a bit more about about that, you know, maybe some tips uh, for parents to get their kids to play more. Yeah, I think, you know, something that I discussed um, 
with this with a, a book club that I happen to have that we're actually talking about an an essay written by Seneca a couple thousand years ago where he talks about this very issue the purpose of this guided play and the purpose is because we're also very different and we have very valuable contributions potentially to make to society but so often that potential and those potential contributions are mooted by the fact that we're sitting in a classroom of 30 other kids and the teacher has a mandate from her superiors to to teach certain things. And and not everyone needs to know calculus. I don't even know what the Pythagorean theorem is, Liz. I'm not kidding. I have no idea what that it is. That makes me I'm, break out in a cold sweat even hearing you say that. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's lovely. I'm sure someone needs it, but um not everyone does. And so I think what the article, although it does say in the classroom, my experience not only as a public school teacher before. Uh, well, mostly is that you have 32 kids and you got to hit the sweet spot. You can't, you don't have time to particularly notice. Whereas in a family setting, if you're homeschooled, as it says possible in the home, yeah, I don't know many families with 30 children. I, you know, you have two, three, four, and that gives you more time and ability to pay particular attention to each child's unique talents, uh, unique proclivities, and then guide his play sort of instead of saying, well, that's lovely that you want that you're such a good reader, but here sort out this calculus problem. Whereas in doing that, you, you ignore someone else's math genius and you, you squelch the, the literary genius of another student. And so you end up guiding them and you end up, I think this is the, the world that we used to live in before the proliferation of public school. And you, you wonder where have all the Mark Twain's, the Shakespeare's, uh, you know, the, the Albert Einstein's gone, where have they gone? Well, They've gone to school and they're sitting in a classroom where they're mostly anonymous. Interesting. Joel Wolverton is the John Birch Society's constitutional law scholar and head of a dedicated think tank focused on promoting and preserving the Constitution of the U.S. through defending and upholding the principles enshrined in the Constitution. We are talking about the importance of play. And this uh, next story uh, about just that from the Financial Express r- reminded me, um, just ta- is talking about the most critical phase of human development is just from birth to the age of eight. Um, so, you know, a good reminder, I think, for for parents, for, for all of us, uh, frankly, uh, how important those formative years are um, to perhaps not even structure them as much as I think some parents seem to be so focused, uh, laser focused on that nowadays. Yeah, I think that's uh, the point that they make in the article is a good point. And I think, honestly, Liz, it could be transformative if we could get this message. And and you're an excellent spokeswoman for all things that are important. But if we could get this message to parents that, hey, you don't have to have this this structure that was imposed upon education relatively recently. You can go back to a sort of more free form, individually narrowly tailored form of instruction that includes play, that includes allowing a student's mind to roam free, that allows you to see, because today you wouldn't be able to see this. So you're talking from birth to eight years old, 
Um, you know, half today, many parents only have birth to four and many parents being two income families have even less than that because their children from birth are sent to daycare and you have very little time. So if that's your situation, make sure that you take advantage of every second you have with your child from birth to eight to really pay attention to who they are, the uniqueness. I mean, can you imagine if Mozart's parents had not paid attention and not provided him with a piano and not given him paper and a pen? He wrote an opera when he was five, Liz. So we can have the, this generation of geniuses uh, and, and, you know, just masterpieces again if we pay attention to this learning that's starting to percolate up to the to the public consciousness again of this guided play. Yeah, I love this quote, Joe. It talks about when young brains interact with the things in their environment, especially in ways that stimulate their creativity and critical thinking abilities, they're more likely to become proficient problem solvers. Uh, for example, providing children with a challenging situation or task and offering them the freedom to explore their ways out of it. Uh, not only pushes their critical thinking, but strengthens their cognitive abilities. Preschoolers can thus prepare for the realities of the real real world uh, through simple yet effective play-based activities. I'm hoping that my son, uh, who seems to love making paper airplanes out of his homework, uh, perhaps this will somehow translate into important life skill that remains to be seen, Joe. But I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let him play. You know, my my proclivity as skipping school encouraged me to be the explorer I am today. Well, well, there we go, uh, Joe Wolverton. We're always grateful for your insights. Thank you so much for being on. Yes, ma'am, Liz. I appreciate it all the time. And yeah, again, you can catch uh, Joe's work. Uh, he's a great writer for the New American, and he he's easy to find. Also, a big star on on TikTok. Uh, I have to say. But this show is brought to you by The New American. For more, visit thenewamerican.com. You're listening to Educate with Liz Collins.